Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we have a real treat for you. We are joined by Tyler LeBaron, who is the founder of the Molecular Hydrogen Institute and really one of the most knowledgeable people in the United States about molecular hydrogen, which is by far, I believe it's my favorite supplement. If I was going to have a favorite, it would be molecular hydrogen because of its incredible benefits. And um, we're going to talk about what some of those are. And Tyler is really the one who helped me understand this and continually contributes to my evolution of thinking on the proper application of this. So welcome and thank you for joining us, Tyler. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it's always great to have the opportunity to talk about some of the research that I've been fortunate to be involved in. Yes. And when we last talked, I don't think you were formally involved in your PhD program, but now you are. And because of all the studies that you've published previously, you're on an accelerated path and uh, you're going to be ha having your PhD soon. So why don't you just briefly describe that and then we can go into some of the new science. Yeah, I've been lucky to be involved in the hydrogen research for quite some time. And uh, of course, I've, I've, I've put off a little bit of starting my PhD earlier because I was going to uh, want to do it in molecular hydrogen. And then I had the opportunity um, you know, several years ago. And so it's, you know, I've, I've, I've been able to yeah, really work with a lot of different groups and especially some of the stuff we're doing right now. Um, and things are going really well and we'll find some really exciting things that I'm excited to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So you're doing a lot of traveling because you're doing your PhD work in Europe and you're still uh, taking regular paths back to China, I believe, or, or, is it Japan or China? Well, China and Japan, yeah. So I collaborate with both people, both some different people groups in Japan as well as in China. Um, China more so recently. Well, I wasn't the same recently, but now with the uh, coronavirus. Coronavirus, uh, yes. Yeah, I, I haven't. I, well, I was there in December, and then I was there at the beginning of the month uh, in January, right before uh, a yeah. lot of the outbreaks really started taking off. Well, so. the outbreak started in December. Yeah. Beginning in Wuhan. Well, I mean, before they grew so much that the airports yeah. were being closed down and everything, because I was right there in Shanghai, and then uh, a couple of weeks after I got back, you know, that that whole city became, you know, under like lockdown, basically. Yeah. So, well, I'm glad you made it back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me too. And we're quarantined out there. So, well, before we begin into some of the exciting research, I think it might be wise to summarize a bit at least, some of the benefits of molecular hydrogen and why it works maybe in a few minutes and you know how it's a potent selective antioxidant and, and unlike typical traditional and conventional antioxidants like vitamin C and vitamin E, uh, when taken in excess can be actually highly counterproductive and really nullify some of the benefits of formatic stressors that we're put through like exercise, whereas hydrogen doesn't have that downside. So, um, 
which is one of the reasons why it's my favorite. And I think it's just, uh, there's almost no downside to molecular hydrogen. So why don't you just summarize the, the reasons why someone should be interested in this? Yeah, absolutely. And just to make sure everyone's on the same page, when we're talking about molecular hydrogen, we are talking about the gas, the H2 mm -hmm. molecule, just one hydrogen and another hydrogen that they bind together and they form the H2 molecule. And typically when we hear about molecular hydrogen, hydrogen gas, we think of maybe an alternative energy source because it's three times more energy dense than gasoline. And it turns out that although it can be used as an alternative energy source, it can also be used in, as an alternative medicine, so to speak. And this molecule also, because it is so small, and it's the smallest molecule in the universe, smaller than oxygen even, it's able to diffuse through the cell membranes, like the blood-brain barrier, for example, the subcellular compartments into the mitochondria, the nucleus. It's able to get everywhere very easily, very quickly, because it is so small. It doesn't need specific transporters. And, and that's a critical part, part to just consider for a little bit in order for a molecule or a nutrient or vitamin to do any good for you in the first place, you have to actually get it inside of the cell. So this bioavailability becomes one of the major factors in all pharmacology and nutraceuticals and so on. And some of the things that dictate cellular bioavailability is number one, its size. And the smaller the molecule, the easier it can get inside of the cell. And hydrogen gas, as we mentioned, is the smallest molecule. So it has that beat uh, it beats every other molecule out there. And then another part is its charge or pol and polarity. Well, hydrogen gas has no charge. And that's very critical because if it was charged, say like an ion, so just think of say potassium ion or a sodium ion, these are very small ions, but because they are charged like this, they cannot go through the cell membrane. They have to go through a, a, a protein channel in order to get through the cell membrane. And the other things, even like water. So water is a neutral molecule. It looks like Mickey Mouse, oxygen, and the two hydrogens combined, right? Of course, that's very different than molecular hydrogen because notice in this case with the water, the hydrogens are tied to the water molecule. So it's totally different. But with that water molecule, although it is, it is neutral, it has a polarity, has a, a uh, the oxygen has a slightly negative charge and the hydrogens on the water molecule are slightly positive that also prevents it from going through the cell membranes and it has to go through a protein channel called aquaporins. So again, because hydrogen gas is small, it's neutral and it's nonpolar, that again allows it to enter through the cell membranes and diffuse into the subcellular compartments easier than anything else. So it has truly the, the best uh, or, or, or most favorable distribution properties of pretty much any other supplement or molecule that uh, you, could, you could dream of. In fact, that you could even uh, create, if you will, hydrogen gas is already there. So that's a very important part about the pharmacokinetics and, and how hydrogen gas can get into the cells. Now, uh, going to some of the benefits, I guess we can talk about just some of the, those brief things. Um, we are finding that hydrogen gas is able to suppress or, or decrease excessive oxidative stress, as well as excessive inflammation, as well as excessive uh, perturbations from normal homeostasis. And maybe we should dive into each one of those areas a little bit to dis describe, to, to explain why it's important about this excessive that I'm talking about. Yeah, that's the, the key point is emphasis on the excessive because uh, it, it, it only addresses excess oxidative stress because some oxidative stress and some free radicals are beneficial. Nitric, oxi nitric oxide would be a classic example. 
Yeah, yeah, thank you, exactly. And, and maybe many people don't um, grasp that um, initially. We just think of oxidation is really bad, which it is, right? Uh, again, we know that if you, when you cut your apple in half, your avocado, right? Yes. <laughs> um, but when you when you when you have your fruit or different things, you have the oxidation. That's what causes the the brown. Um, it, it's what causes rusting. And the exact same thing really does happen in our bodies as we breathe the oxygen. When we exercise more, we're breathing more oxygen, and that is causing this oxidation. So that's a process always occurring. In fact, that's how we metabolize food is through the process of oxidation. Um, but that oxidation that is necessary for life to exist is also the very thing that is slowly taking away your life, if you will. So oxygen does have this toxic effect as well. And like you mentioned, I'm glad you brought up nitric oxide. That, that is, by definition, a free radical has a lone pair electron. But of course, nitric oxide is one of the most important um, molecules, simply molecules that, that there are. It induces vasodilation and a whole host of wonderful and very critical benefits. And, and, and we're seeing other things, including superoxide uh, radical. That, that also is a free radical, but it's extremely important. So very important that we understand that it's about the excess, uh, excessive oxidative uh, process that's going on. And that's, that's when we get into, uh, well, because we have our body's natural antioxidant systems already, and, and, and we have to have that in order to fight against this toxicity of, of oxygen. So when you look at plants, for example, one of the reasons why we want to eat we eat plants, we get antioxidants from plants because plants also developed ways to handle this toxicity of oxygen. And so plants develop antioxidants. And when we eat the plants, we get some of those antioxidants, right? So that's, that's how this pro process works. Now, the, that oxidative process or the, that oxidation that's occurring, some of the things is, is involved besides the cell signaling, but also even for protein folding. So when you fold your proteins, you sometimes have to have um, an oxidative power that in order to get the correct folding of the proteins. Um, this happens in like, say, the endoplasmic reticulum uh, of, of the cells. And if your proteins are not folded correctly, they're not gonna have the right structure. And, and that's the fundamental principle of biology and biochemistry is that structure dictates function. So if you don't have the correct structure, then they're not gonna function correctly. And it turns out that aging is, is often associated with a a decrease in this oxidative power, or oxidative potential that is required to fold your proteins correctly. And so you actually have, have a lack of oxidative power going on in the endoplasmic reticulum, while at the same time, you're suffering from an excessive amount of oxidative distress that, that's going on in the body. So that's very interesting to consider that in the exact same cell, you having an oxidative distress, maybe in the, in the cytoplasm, as well as a lack of oxidizing power potential in the endoplasmic reticulum. And we can call this a redox dysregulation. And when, when you have this dyshomeostasis of, of redox, redox meaning oxidation and reduction, when you have this dysregulation, that's really what sets the stage for diseases and aging and a whole bunch of other pathological problems. Yeah, so, there's, there's tools like hydrogen that can help resolve that. But, and there's other tools like saunas, with, especially for the misfolded proteins, which should be particularly beneficial because they create these heat shock proteins, which are particularly beneficial for refolding or removing the damaged proteins. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's interesting, even like with sauna um, and different things and, and exercise, when, when, when we do some of these different therapies, uh, whether it be a photobiomyelitis, 
photobiomodulation, uh, exercise, the sauna, a, a lot of this actually mildly increases oxidation in the body. Mm -hmm. And that oxidation in the body is what induces heat shock proteins. So the, the, the production of heat shock proteins is because there was some sort of a damage, a mild damage that was done to the body. And then we get these heat shock proteins and we call this hormesis. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and this is an important word because we're gonna talk about this a lot when we talk about the benefits of molecular hydrogen because it, it, it seems to work through some similar processes of, of hormesis. So when it comes to the oxidative stress that's going on, we really need to uh, get that back into homeostasis. And we, we, we can't just come in and neutralize all the free radicals. So many antioxidants, they contain this, it's called the conjugated pi system, where I just have a whole bunch of electrons that are able to easily donate and scavenge and react with a whole bunch of radicals or oxidants indiscriminately and, and neutralize them. And, and let's give an example of this. Would intravenous glutathione, which is frequently administered in many alternative medicine clinics, would that be an example? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Intravenous glutathione. In fact, almost every standard antioxidant that, that we're aware of um, can fit into this criteria. And in almost every single case, well, and I say that because there's probably some cases where it's not, not true, but I can't think of any. Um, when you administer a whole bunch of them for a long time, you end up increasing a dysregulation of the redox homeostasis because you're causing a, a too high of a reductive environment and the cell can't keep up with this and you start getting problems. Even, even genetically, when, when, you, when you do genetic mutations to say have an, a constituently upregulated NRF2 pathway, which we'll talk about later, but NRF2 causes more antioxidants. When you have this, then, then you end up having a lot of other problems, um, cardiomyopathies and, and this, this overtly reductive um, environment in the cells can lead to a lot of problems. So it, absolutely, that, that's why taking lots of antioxidants all the time, day in and day out for years, it, it simply causes a lot of problems. In fact, they've had to stop a whole bunch of clinical trials because those taking these antioxidants were dying faster than those taking the placebo. Yeah, there was a common theory of aging, the free radical, Darman, I think Darman Hardin is the guy that started in the 50s, uh, and it's become less popular now, but that anti, we're suppressing this, anti this oxidative stress with antioxidants was one way to uh, slow down the aging process. And as you just mentioned, the studies don't, don't bear that out. Yeah, exactly. Now, of course, there are, there are studies um, in, in different animals. Um, there are studies in different uh, fruit flies, and there's different things showing that clearly oxidative stress absolutely contributes to aging. Mm -hmm. But that's when it's oxidative stress, and that's really what's, what, what's occurring. Sometimes um, antioxidants um, can, can even exacerbate oxidative stress because uh, they, they, can, they can increase like Fenton reaction cycles and, and redox cycling and, and end up being um, potent. Uh, pro-oxidants and things as well. So it's, it is very complicated and we have to be very cautious. And that's, and, and we can even talk about some of those studies like with the vitamin E or beta carotene. Oh, well, those are just synthetic. Um, so, and, that, and that's why they're having these problems that weren't taking the right form. But whatever way that we want to describe that, the fact is these are still um, antioxidants in the conventional sense. They were they're still reductive molecules. They, they still had a negative impact on the body. And it's possibly because of this um, excessive amount of reductive character that, that, that was going on. And, and hydrogen gas simply doesn't do that. 
that's in fact that's that's why hydrogen gas we know can be one of the reasons we know it can be so safe is because it it, it simply does not have the reductive power or potential to neutralize or react with some of these critical important um, signaling oxidants such as hydrogen peroxide singlet oxygen superoxide radicals nitric oxide uh, it, it it just does not have the ability to react with these even in vitro even in well, if you just put the two together it, they don't react well, and what's the current thought on hydroxyl free radical because i think initially that was the consideration that was this mechanism of action it was neutralizing this free radical but but i don't believe that's the current thought yeah and that's probably that's probably right because there's there's so many discrepancies about that but but you're right initially it was considered well uh hey if hydrogen gas it can one of the one of the very few free radicals that hydrogen gas can react with is the toxic hydroxyl radical and the hydroxyl radical is is literally the most reactive radical in, in the body it is such a strong oxidizing power and potential that it reacts indiscriminately with anything um, i mean instant instantaneously and it has it's so strong has such a strong oxidizing power that it actually can react with hydrogen gas and and when it does you create simply water which is mm -hmm. which, which can be nice right um and because hydrogen gas is able to distribute throughout the body so quickly and because it's so small then during the times of a, say a trauma so if you consider uh say a cerebral infarction or a stroke where you have these conditions of ischemia reperfusion um which to, to talk about that the the ischemia part is when you have the lack of uh, blood flow to say your brain and then that, and that causes lots of damage of course if you don't get blood flow early soon enough then if you have the no oxygen and no nutrients then that tissue, those cells will die. And, but interestingly, uh, even more damaging than, than a, than a short-term ischemia is the reperfusion process, which is when you bring back in the oxygen-rich blood into, that, into those cells, into the organ. And when you do that, that creates a cascade of all these oxidative and inflammatory responses and the sequela of all these events leads to necrosis and apoptosis and, and death and everything. And, and that's why, um, if, for example, people who suffer from a, a myocardial infarction um, or, or different areas, sometimes they can be resuscitated and then it's days later they end up dying or they end up having severe damage because, uh, yeah, they, they save them immediately, but the long-term effects um, ended up being very damaging. Okay, so this is, this is a critical aspect of, of how how molecular hydrogen could work during these times of ischemia reperfusion or other issues is because during that time there's a whole bunch of hydroxyl radicals that are produced and hydroxyl radicals are just so damaging and and lethal mm. and then hydrogen gas because it has such a small it's such a small molecule and can rapidly diffuse there then it would react with hydroxyl radicals prevent the damage and and there you go and we see the benefits of hydrogen gas appears to almost be doing just that because um, you know, that first article that you and I talked about in Nature Medicine in, published mm -hmm. in 2007, that's exactly what they found when they, when they induced uh, a, a, this ischemia perfusion in the brain by um, cutting the blood supply to the brain, and then they inhaled hydrogen gas. Well, it was a rodent study, right? And they administered 2% hydrogen gas. That 2% hydrogen gas significantly suppressed the brain damage induced by, by this uh, uh, cerebral infarction, basically. And it was thought, well, hey, that's probably because it's able to get through there where all these hydroxyl radicals are being produced, quench all those bad guys, 
and, and now we don't have that damage. But to your point, maybe that's not really what's going on. Well, but, but let me stop here because I think that is an important uh, consideration that you bring up that I seem to have neglected. Uh, but it would appear that uh, part of the revised protocol for every heart attack, at least acute heart attack, and stroke should have molecular hydrogen implemented ASAP because uh, it, of the reperfusion, ischemia reperfusion uh, injury prevention potential. And uh, ha has there been studies that uh, looked at this or are there any uh, protocols being deployed currently? Because it would seem this like the perfect marriage for this. I mean, we, why would you not do it? There's like no limp, there's no risk. Uh, the cost is almost free and the, bet, the upside potential is enormous. Yeah, absolutely. And, and fortunately, there are some good, um, uh, some, some research programs that are getting into place with this because the animal models um, have been very, very promising. In fact, uh, one, one study, for example, in a rodent study, just, just consider uh, these numbers as, as I tell them, um, with post-cardiac arrest syndrome, um, with no treatment at all, there was only a 43% survival, okay? And so that's pretty grim, 43% survival. Almost one out of two are dead. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, now, when they do the standard therapy, which is therapeutic hypothermia, uh, cool the body down, because that's gonna lower the metabolism and that's gonna create less free radicals. So it, it's, it works very well. In fact, so well that, they, it, that the survival rate goes from 43% all the way to 77%. So that's, you know, obviously that's what's why it's often done. Now, when they used hydrogen gas, just hydrogen gas alone, that survival rate went to 92%. <laughs> and then when they combined it, it was 100%, 100% survival. Oh, okay. That, this, that's exactly what I would predict. I didn't know the studies were done, but that is just awesome. Yeah. And, so, and, there's, and it's almost free. I mean, it just literally costs far less than a dollar to implement that therapy. It's a pretty, yeah, it really is a pretty easy. And now again, that was just a rodent study. There's quite a few rodent studies that are coming out. There's studies that's been done in, in pigs. Um, in fact, we did some research in, in, in Prague uh, last year with inhalation of during, a, for, during a heart transplants. And we're, we're, we, we were we, we have, we're still analyzing the data, but we saw some good effects, decreasing oxidative damage and things. There was also a study done um, by, by Harvard University, um, published in American Heart Association Journal, and they, they found some phenomenal uh, uh, effects using hydrogen gas for extracorporeal blood circulation. Yeah, well, that is just fantastic. I wasn't expecting to find <laughs> new indication I had a appreciate it before, but that is good. But I, I, I interrupted you and put, took you off on a tangent. You were going to explain the believe mechanism now. Yeah, the primary mechanism is not hydroxyl, yeah. even though it has great benefit in that for these two acute problems. And, and these are not small considerations. Stroke and heart attack are the leading cause of death in the United States. So people know. I mean, these, yeah. This is what takes most people out. Yeah, that's right. That's right. In fact, well, and I'll get... You know, now I got, I was, I was distracted, but I, I forgot to tell you the most important uh, aspect of all of this, the, the Japanese government actually approved the inhalation of hydrogen gas as an advanced medicine for the treatment of post-cardiac arrest syndrome. Mm. So, so now there's a major study going on, 360 patients in multi-hospitals looking to really determine the, the true efficacy of inhalation of hydrogen gas 
during these exact conditions that we're talking about. And so that's been going, that's going on in Japan. And there's some clinical studies have already come out showing very favorable effects. I mean, you know, not, not as much as the rodents. It's very difficult to have the exact same amazing effects in rodents as it is in humans. But the fact that you're seeing translational effects, which almost, I mean, it almost never occurs with, you know, typical uh, supplements and, and pharmaceuticals, but we're seeing these, these, uh, these promising effects in humans. And then with that Harvard study, for example, um, now they they're actually have obtained um, approval from the FDA um, as a as a um, investigative new drug to do a similar type of research during extracorporeal blood circulation um, to to do actually do uh, use hydrogen gas during this time this period as well. So this is an ongoing thing that that appears to just continue growing with more research groups from different places um, looking at it more and and initially. Uh, again, that hydroxyl radical is such, it, it is a very major contributor to the damaging effects that occur during ischemia perfusion. And that's why almost every article, especially the earlier articles that you look at um, on hydrogen gas, it talks about the hydroxyl radicals and, and a major emphasis on the ischemia perfusion. But, but as we were talking about, well, maybe the hydroxyl radical is not as biologically uh, significant that the scavenging activity of, of the hydroxyl radical is not as biologically significant as we thought it was before. Well, and, and listen, individuals who aren't dying acutely from a, some severe stressor. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So normal, um, normal humans. Yeah. Those That's who those mechanism. those who don't have a huge bout of hydroxyl radicals that have already oxidized all the antioxidants and everything else already. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but, but the fact is that when you look at, when you do the chemical kinetics, and, and I've done quite a bit of math, math and things on this, looking at the second um, order rate constants, and you know, the fact is hydrogen gas to react with hydroxyl radical is about three times, um, the, the rate constant about three times lower, orders of magnitude lower than it is for other nucleophilic uh, molecules that would react with hydroxyl radical. And so when you just do the, some of these calculations, you start seeing that um, despite hydrogen gas being able to diffuse very quickly and have you know and and get to these places very easily, the hydroxyl radical just reacts so fast that the probability, just based on probability, for it to actually interact and intersect with the with with each other um, is quite low. So something else has to be going on. And in fact, even with these ischemic perfusion studies, if we were to administer hydrogen gas. Um, say, you know, the hours before, and then a hydrogen gas is only going to stay in the body for, say, an hour, okay? Mm -hmm. And then after all the hydrogen gas is gone out of the body, and then, they, and then, and then there's an ischemic perfusion attack, an, an IR, ischemic perfusion IR injury, you still see a, a very pronounced benefit from previously administering hydrogen gas, despite the fact that there was no hydrogen gas present in order to scavenge these hydroxyl radicals. So how, how do you explain that then, right? So this is why we're to recognition that hydrogen gas is, is clearly, its role is, is much more than just acting as this typical uh, antioxidant, but truly acting as a, as a gaseous signal modulator that is able to you know, influence gene expression, protein phosphorylations, signal transduction cascades, all of these things that help explain the, the therapeutic effects we're observing from hydrogen gas. Yeah, and is that primarily done through the NRF2 pathway? I would say, yes, yeah. so the antioxidant um, effects of hydrogen gas is probably one of the main, the main things. Um, so, so yeah, we should probably talk about the NRF2 
uh, again, the NRF2 is this, is this protein that's, that's bound, it's in the cytosol, it's bound to another protein, KEEP1, and when there's an assault of oxidative stress or something, then those, those two separate, and then the NRF2 is able to diffuse um, into the nucleus of the DNA, and it binds to the, to the um, electrophile response, or, or AR, the antioxidant response element portion of the DNA, and when it does that, that ends, ends up leading to the production of a whole bunch of endogenous antioxidants like your glutathione, superoxidase mutase, catalase. In fact, the NRF2 regulates and controls over 200 cytoprotective proteins and enzymes. That's why it's called phase two detoxification enzymes. So when we talk about antioxidation and detoxification and all this stuff, a lot of that is, is, is all regulated and controlled by NRF2. That is the master regulator. So it is a key protein involved in all of these cellular processes. And it turns out hydrogen gas is able to activate the NRF2 pathway. Now, there, how would you compare it to some of the xenohormetic uh, activators of NRF2 like sulforaphane, which would be, I think, classically considered one of the most powerful, powerful activators? Yeah, well, um, I guess for me, I, I wouldn't compare it um, because it's like, okay. <laughs> I mean, you, I mean, you can, you can take, you know, you can do one study and you can directly compare the two, but that, that is, uh, that's looking at, you know, the cell culture or something that's not going to give you the indication of what's really going on because they, the, the pharmacology, the two were, were totally different. Um, mm. Hydrogen gas, in fact, hydrogen gas may not, if, if the cell is already normal and it already has the correct uh, cellular homeostasis and there's not an excess amount of oxidative stress going on, you might find that there's no actual uh, increase in, NRF, in, in downstream NRF2 proteins that have been activated because mm. you already have uh, normal levels of, say, superoxidase mutase or catalase. You don't you don't want to have higher levels. You might see increases in mRNA uh, production of, of NRF2, but just because you see higher mRNA, so mRNA is the messenger RNA. So you have to have your DNA and then you make mRNA and then mRNA is used to then make the proteins. And so it has to go through this process. So you can have an increase in mRNA, but just because you have an increase in mRNA does not necessarily mean you're going to have an increase in proteins. And so sometimes hydrogen gas increases the mRNA levels but that doesn't always mean that, well, a lot of things, not just hydrogen gas, but just because the higher mRNA levels does not mean you're going to have higher protein levels and, and, and because those are further regulated. And so the point is, uh, whereas with sulforaphane or some other things, you, you'll almost always see the, uh, a spike and increase in the NRF2 production, where with hydrogen gas, you, you may uh, not, necessarily, you may not so necessarily see that because it may not be needed. So that's the primary dis distinction is that there is no endogenous biofeedback. Uh, well, with sulforaphane, it's just it's just put, put pressing the accelerator on NRF2 indiscriminately, whereas NRF2 you've got this endogenous control system that only produces it if it's necessary. Yeah, that's probably a good way to think about it, and that's that's one of the uh, the, the nice things about hydrogen gas that really decreases its 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 risk for uh, being uh, toxic to the cells because it, it it doesn't have the capacity to just go in indiscriminately and just force the production or induction or, or something of, of the NRF2 or a whole bunch of other molecules that, that it's able to regulate. Um, it's, it just, it, it tends to bring things back to homeostasis. And the further something is away from homeostasis, the higher the probability that hydrogen gas be able to help bring that in, back into homeostasis. But if something is already at a perfect level, well then you may see that hydrogen gas didn't do anything for that to, to maintain that perfect level. 
Yeah, and why don't you other, why don't you have a few other comments on the safety profile? It appears to be one of the safest therapeutic options that's available to humans, and the toxicity is almost non-existent. So, why don't you give a few examples that support that that supposition? Yeah, absolutely. So, so one of the one of the things about hydrogen gas because it's not just such a strong pharmacological agent, um, that means that uh, it, it's it's not going to it's not like a, an NSAID, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory or, or uh, a steroid or something where you can have this dramatic effect. And things that have dramatic biological effects often are going to have very toxic effects when taken too much or too high. And the smaller the effect, the less likely it is to have a, a toxic type effect. Um, although anecdotally, I, there are people when they take the molecular hydrogen you know, they, they notice a very quick uh, relief of, say, pain or different things, which you can talk about that later. But um, the fact that hydrogen gas is a very mild molecule that tends to regulate things back towards homeostasis helps it to be a safer molecule. And so we, when we look at the, the studies done on molecular hydrogen, we can see the safety from several different angles. Um, number one, if we look at uh, research from deep sea diving, so in deep sea diving, typically they use, uh, uh, often they use helium gas because that's, that's, it's not very narcotic compared to nitrogen gas. But when they go really deep, sometimes they'll even use uh, hydrogen gas, like um, hydrolix or hydroxy even, which is like 98% hydrogen gas. And they can go very deep because hydrogen gas is, is, is less narcotic than any of the gas. And these pressures we're talking about are extreme, extreme pressures that there's no way you could ever, I mean, we're talking about, you know, 10, 10 20 atmospheres of pressure. Wow. Um, you know, and, and they've done these studies and these human studies, you know, with, you know, 19 ATM uh, atmospheres of pressure and, you know, the, and, and the balance oxygen. So there's actually still the same amount of oxygen available uh, on a mole, on a mole basis. God, they'd have to do it hydrogen because the oxygen toxicity at those at that pressure is just enormous. You'd go into a seizure and die. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they have to lower it, lower it down to, uh, to so there's the same amount of molecules in that in that under that pressure, right? So, but when they do these studies, there's no there's no long toxic there's no long toxic effects um, of of the hydrogen gas. So despite the fact that um, you're at very high pressures we don't see any long-term toxic effects. And, and interestingly, um, there's, there's some of these uh, people who've been doing deep sea diving for a long time. When, when you go down there really deep, you get this, uh, um, this deep sea diver type um, anxiety, this, this, uh, this kind of a, a, a sickness, you know, where you, you start being quite, quite scared, uh, basically. Um, and hydrogen gas also has this biological effect to, to slightly suppress that anxiety so that you can think better and be more calm and be clear and and you're just you're, you're it's so it has this 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 other effect that deep sea divers have known for a long time never really understanding why and maybe we're understanding a little bit more because now we understand the biological effects of hydrogen gas so the first line of safety simply comes even from studies that done since the 1940s in deep sea diving um, then then we have other the other studies uh, well, actually, another big one is the fact that hydrogen gas is, is a natural molecule to our body. It's not some alien or foreign substance that our body's never been exposed to. We, we're exposed to hydrogen gas on a daily basis by the, by, from the bacteria in our intestines that are producing it all the time. So we're, we're always exposed to hydrogen gas. So when you eat your, uh, your, your fibers, your non-digestible carbohydrates, uh, your fruits and your vegetables, 
a lot of that fiber can then be metabolized by the bacteria in your intestines to produce hydrogen gas. And, and then you have, end up having, having, having hydrogen gas in your blood and in your breath. And there's quite a few studies demonstrating that this hydrogen gas is indeed therapeutic and, and it has therapeutic effects. And by blocking the production of hydrogen gas, despite still giving fiber, a lot of those benefits are, are eliminated or, or at least significantly reduced. In fact, some, some of them have been suggested that some of the, the drugs like acarbose or, or different things that, that um, have cardiovascular protective effects may, may have something to do with the fact that more hydrogen gas is being produced. So, so again, about the safety of deep sea diving, you have the endogenous production from the body, and then we, you have the actual studies that we've been conducting um, in whether in, in animal uh, human clinical studies or in animal studies or in the cell culture studies where we've taken at a cellular level um, taken the concentration of hydrogen gas you know to let's see if it's 20 micromolar so you know 10 times 100 times higher than you'd ever get by taking hydrogen gas any other way and we see in the cells that there's no there's no toxic effect um, and, and, and so this is a very big issue, uh, a, a benefit with the, with the safety of hydrogen. Now, one interesting thing, though, is maybe hydrogen gas is, does have a toxic effect, and that's why it induces this hormesis effect, because how does hydrogen gas activate the NRF2 pathway? In order for hydrogen gas to activate NRF2 pathway, it has to be doing something that causes the cell to be like, wait, something's not quite right. I don't know what it is, but I'm just going to activate these uh, cytoprotective proteins just in case. So hydrogen is doing something, but when you look at the study, so for example, in one, in one study, they, they administered uh, hydrogen peroxide to the cells, and that both can kill the cells as well as it can activate the NRF2 pathway. When you administer the hydrogen gas with the hydrogen peroxide, uh, the cell survival increases because hydrogen gas is protecting. Um, and and so, so it's not that hydrogen, so, so somehow, if hydrogen gas were just an indiscriminately activated in the NRF2 pathway, then you would actually see that if you administer hydrogen gas, uh, sorry, if you administer hydrogen peroxide, a toxin, and then you administer hydrogen gas, which also would ostensibly be a toxin because it can activate the NRF2 pathway, then you would expect to see uh, more cell death. But that's not what you see. You see an increased cell survival. And then when you administer uh, hydrogen gas uh, alone, without the hydrogen, hydrogen peroxide, you can still see an increase in the NRF2 pathway. So again, hydrogen gas has this dual rule, dual rule role where it can um, both protect against the oxidative distress as well as act as this mild, mild uh, hormetic effector uh, in, in the mitochondria to, to increase mild amounts of a free radical similar to an easy bout of exercise, for example, which can then induce these protective effects. So there might be a toxic effect, but it's so small and, and for such a short amount of time that that is what mediates the benefits of hydrogen. And then by, by the time you build up hydrogen and everything else, you never actually get a really toxic effect of hydrogen. Because the fact is, hydrogen gas does not build up in the body. You just excel it out. It's gone within an hour after yeah. ingestion. And we'll, we'll talk about the dosing next. I just want to make a comment first and repeat what I think what uh, a comment I made in the first interview that we had, which was an experience I had during my residency program, which was an inner city hospital. And uh, there were many end stage alcoholics there who, and a number of whom had hepatic encephalopathy, essentially uh, because their liver was shot, they were in a brain coma. 
And one of the treatments at that time, and I think still may exist, you know, I haven't practiced that type of medicine for a long, for many decades now, but was lactulose, which is oh, yeah. a non-digestible carbohydrate, which is fermented by the, and at the time I didn't know this, but it was fermented. And I don't think anyone knew how it worked, but it worked. I mean, you'd give the, the, these patients lactulose and they would come out of the coma, but it appears to to generate increased hydrogen gas production by the bacteria in the gut because it's fermented by them and boom, activates NRF2 pathway and they're rescued. It's just extraordinary. And uh, a simple, inexpensive, non-toxic solution. Yeah, 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 thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, lactulose is a great, uh, it really does increase the production of hydrogen a lot. And so, so there are specific studies that have been done using lactulose showing the benefits are mediated by hydrogen gas, but we don't understand if that's all of them. Yeah, so that, that's a, but, but ultimately it's this hydrogen gas. So people might be wondering if they're, if they're not familiar already, how do you get hydrogen gas? There's the obvious ways are that you can inhale it. And as you mentioned, they're doing this in many studies in Japan uh, to see if the benefits, but that has its downsides because it's, you have to, well, you can talk about how it's administered from, from inhalation, but it's not easy and it's not simple and there's a lot of complexity to it. Uh, and the other way is to dissolve that gas in water and drink it, uh, as it which is a lot easier to do through a, um, a tablet mechanism. And of course you can make it with the electrolysis machines, which are a lot more expensive and don't produce anywhere near the concentrations that you would require. So I, I think, why don't you discuss those? And then also the, the really crucial concept here that is, it needs to be understood at a very deep level in that it's not just, it, it's counterintuitive because you would think the more hydrogen gas, the better, but that's not the case. Because as you mentioned, we're making like 10 liters of hydrogen gas a day. That's a lot of hydrogen gas, but it's not the absolute quantity is important. It's, it's the pulsing or the acute elevation uh, uh, over a short period of time that seems to stimulate the NRF2 pathway. So help us understand that at a deeper level. Yeah, sure. So, um, okay, so, so, so I guess we'll, fo we'll focus on, on that intermittent type exposure and the dosing. Yeah, and the gas and the, the different ways, you know, comparing the in inhaled gas to the tablets. Okay, okay, maybe, yeah, we'll just go through that then. Okay, so yeah, with inhalation, yeah, absolutely. When it comes to medical gases, Typically, we're, we're used to in administering a gas through inhalation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it seems almost strange to take, 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 take the gas and then dissolve it into water and then drink it like, <laughs> yeah. like, like oxygen. Like you, you, you know, that has been, that's one of the biggest scams in the industry, in, in the world. Oxygen water. Oxygen and water, yeah. Taking yeah, yeah. oxygen, dissolving the water, and thinking that if you drink that, you're going to get all these benefits. It's and not going to work, folks. It, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't work. There's, you know, the low solubility. You you have, you know, you, you, the, the oxygen has to be um, is absorbed in the lungs because that's where the high pH with the Bohr effect and you know and it's all this other kind of stuff. You yeah, and it binds to hemoglobin. It doesn't it doesn't dissolve in plasma spontaneously unless you already have a hyperbaric chamber. Yeah, yeah, which which is different, exactly. Yeah, I mean, but the fact is, you would get more oxygen in your body by breathing, you know, an extra quarter of a breath, if you will, um, you know, in, in a couple minutes than you would by drinking, you know, water. Um, so that, yeah, exactly, it it doesn't work. So it it really kind of is strange when we're saying, oh, yeah, you can take hydrogen gas, also a gas, and dissolve it in the water and drink it and get benefits. What's the difference? Because you know, if oxygen you can't do with oxygen, then how are you doing it with hydrogen? Hydrogen also it doesn't have high solubility. Um, in fact, there's only the solubility is only 1.6 milligrams per liter. 
So it's like only, you know, that, that's not very much. Like, how, how can this even work? But, but the fact is, uh, it does work. And, and we'll, we'll explain some, some differences between oxygen and hydrogen and why the hydrogen method in water would work, whereas the oxygen would not work. Um, of course, so with inhalation, yeah, the, the, the studies are very favorable when it's coming to using the inhalation. But it's interesting, in like a Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease uh, animal model, where they used, uh, they used inhalation of hydrogen gas 24-7. So 24-7 exposure. The, the cages were exposed to hydrogen gas for 24-7, about a 2 to 3% hydrogen concentration. And, 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 and this is, just, just as an aside, this is because over 4% it becomes explosive. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, the, and the research shows, and that's one of the great things about hydrogen, even at a, even at a level below the flammability level is, is sufficient to be therapeutic, right? So yeah, they had it, you know, two to 3%. And then they had another group that they, they inhaled hydrogen gas intermittently. So once every hour, okay, for, for a few minutes, 15 minutes. And then another group actually was given lactulose, okay, uh, which produces a lot of the hydrogen gas. And then the third group drank hydrogen water. And at, at the end of the study, in this were they were they drinking the water continuously? Just just normally, you add, add libidum okay. whenever, whenever they drink. Okay, whenever libidum. they drink water. Yeah, exactly. Um, how do they, so, how do they keep it dissolved in the water though? Because it diffuses out pretty quickly. You just have to yeah. They just you just have to change it several times a day. Um, okay. You know, at least, at least change it at least twice a day. And and the, and and it's also special the way they they did it with aluminum um, foil and and decrease in the headspace. There's different okay. ways that the okay. researchers have been able to keep a, a high enough concentration by the time they change it the next time that the loss is not too great, okay. right? Um, but when what they found though, was that the continuous hydrogen administration, so 24 seven, you're getting the most hydrogen because you've always been exposed to it, right? Had no effect. There, 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 there was no benefit. Totally counterintuitive. Yeah, because you'd think like, and especially if we talk about the scavenging hydroxyl radicals. Well, then, mm -hmm. if hydrogen gas is always there, always present, if you have to scavenge, you know, whatever radical, boom, it's gone, and that's well, there was no benefit. Okay. Um, then, when they did intermittent exposure of hydrogen, so intermittent inhalation, uh, there was a benefit, statistically significant, but not, not, you know, fantastic. Um, and then with the lactulose administration, actually, there was no benefit either. So because it's continuous. Same thing. Yeah, probably because it was a continuous. Now, other studies, like I said, there are other studies showing that lactulose administration producing the hydrogen gas did exert very therapeutic effects. So there's different disease models, and this was a Parkinson's right. disease model, and in this case, it was did not have benefit. Now, despite that the intermittent inhalation was beneficial, it was nowhere near as beneficial as the drinking of hydrogen water. Okay, <laughs> so, so we, we do see that obviously drinking hydrogen water has its place, and in some cases it could be more effective than inhalation. Now, and, and then again, that still has to beg the question, well, yeah, but hydrogen gas in water, that's the same problem with oxygen. What's the difference? How, how in the heck can you have um, hydrogen water work, but oxygen water does not work? And that's because it's an apple to orange comparison. In order for you know, oxygen, you, you have to get... We, we actually literally use oxygen and quite a bit of it. the atmosphere is 21% oxygen. And, and, we, and we use at least 5% of that every single time that we breathe, um, which actually is not a lot, but it's, we use about 5% of the oxygen um, per breath that, that you take in. And, but, but you're actually using this and, and it's transported by hemoglobin and, and all this kind of stuff. Well, 
hydrogen gas, uh, when, you, when you drink it, there's a couple of things to consider. Number one, yes, 1.6 milligrams per liter as a solubility doesn't sound very much because you're like, hey, I'd take 100 milligrams of vitamin C. Um, so 1.6 milligrams, how can that be very much? But don't forget that hydrogen gas is the lightest molecule in the universe, okay? So of course, 1.6 milligrams is, doesn't weigh very much, because it's hydrogen gas, it's, it, of course it doesn't weigh very much, but it's actually a lot of molecules. In fact, there are more molecules in one point, of 1.6 milligrams of hydrogen than there are molecules of vitamin C in a 100 milligram dose. So That's a very good point. Thank you for uh, <laughs> helping us understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to compare molecules to molecules or moles to moles, not just weight to weight. You know, what, 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 what uh, weighs more, a pound of gold or a pound of feathers, right? Yeah, they weigh the same. <laughs> they weigh the same, right? So, but, but intuitively we're like, oh, of course the gold's going to weigh more. Well, you know, it's, it's a pound. Expensive. It's expensive. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So when we, uh, when we look at uh, uh, molecular hydrogen, there is actually quite a bit. And, and you know, the fact is that there are many uh, molecules that work uh, in the body at biologically relevant concentrations in the nanograms, you know, only taking the nanogram levels. So actually, you know, 1.6 milligrams is, is plenty. Now, now get this, when you, when you inhale, say, a 3% hydrogen gas, then that's going to increase the cellular concentration to a certain level, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, that exact same level, if, you, if we, we can calculate it based on Henry's law and the dose, you're getting in, the dose you're ingesting from drinking hydrogen water, that concentration in the cells can also be reached by just drinking hydrogen water because you, you drink all of it at once and it goes into the body and immediately increases the cellular concentration to the same level that you would get if you were inhaling hydrogen gas um, at 2 to 3% level. So, it, it, of course, it's not going to be there as long as when you're inhaling, you're typically inhaling for, you know, a longer period of time. In fact, we did do a study in Parkinson's uh, disease where we, in, in humans, where we tried to mimic the temporal profile of hydrogen gas in the body. And, and, and it, was, it was a short study, but they only inhaled a very small amount, a very small percentage of hydrogen gas for, I think it was 10, 10 minutes, because we're trying to just mimic the, closely, more closely mimic the amount of hydrogen gas you would be getting if you were to drink hydrogen water. And we saw two interesting effects. Number one, we saw no statistical benefit. So it doesn't work that way. We didn't, we didn't see any benefit um, to, the, to, the disease, to, the, to the disease model. Maybe if we would have gone longer, we would have seen something, I don't know. But we did see something was happening because we saw mild increases similar to, about a, similar to what you would see with, this, with a bout of exercise of oxidative stress. So something was happening. Something in the body was getting to change. So maybe, you know, like I said, maybe if we would have continued doing the study, we would start seeing some benefits um, with that. But in this case, with the short-term, very small amount of hydrogen, it, it, we didn't do it. Now, the, one of the differences also could be because um, the benefits of hydrogen gas for the Parkinson's disease, um, in, there's some data that suggests that it is partly mediated by uh, ghrelin, which is a, a hunger hormone, a gastric ghrelin release. Drinking hydrogen water, the oral consumption of hydrogen water, can induce gastric ghrelin release, and then ghrelin acts as second messenger to benefit uh, the brain. And inhalation of hydrogen gas may not have actually enacted uh, that, that signaling molecule. So, so going back to this concept, drinking hydrogen water um, all at once goes 
it increases the cellular concentration to the same level as inhaling does for, for a shorter period of time, right? But it just, boom, right there, you get a very fast concentration. And then you're, you're, you're also able to enact various second messenger systems that maybe you're not getting with inhalation. So there are obviously cases where drinking hydrogen water is more effective than inhalation and probably vice versa as well. We're just, we need, we need more research on that. Yeah, an important distinction is that you are referencing the normal solubility of hydrogen in water, which is 1.6 milligrams, but there are tablets that create these nanobubbles, which capitalize on Henry's law and through these pressure differentials are able to increase that concentration to up to eight, nine, 10 milligrams per liter which is you know, literally uh, almost 10 times more. So you would expect a better result with a higher concentration over a similar duration. Yeah, and we, we kind of, uh, some things are kind of suggesting that as well. So we, we actually, so, so we actually used uh, those tablets in some of our clinical studies. We oh, did. you did? And yeah, so we, we actually found um, one of them um, we did we did it with a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Okay, maybe we should back up. This is also interesting. Um, we we talked about this before, but but just to consider about dosing a little bit. We back in 2013, um, I was contacted by a group who was doing research on alkaline ionized water, mm -hmm. and they were trying to do look at the benefits of alkaline ionized water on uh, fatty liver disease induced by a high fat diet. And they found no benefit, no benefit whatsoever, despite other articles showing the benefit. And they, I started talking with them, well, what is the concentration of hydrogen? And they, they had no idea. They, they didn't know because that didn't seem to be an important uh, part in alkaline ionized water research at the, at the time. So I said, okay, we needed to figure out what that is. So um, I, I taught them how to measure the concentration of hydrogen and they were able to do that. They came back and the concentration was like 0.3 uh, milligrams per liter or so. Um, then, then they decided to uh, let's do the study again, the exact same study, but let's do a, a low dose of hydrogen and a higher dose of hydrogen. So the lower dose, again, about 0.3 milligrams per liter, and the higher dose, closer to one milligram per liter. So still not even very high, right? That's, that, that, that's, that was the ability that we had, again, many years ago to make um, the hydrogen water for, for, for the, uh, for the um, rodents. Now, what they found is that the low dose, again, had no benefit. There was no benefit compared to just normal control, normal tap water. It was the same as the alkaline ionized water, right? So despite having the, the negative ORP that they talk about, the alkaline pH, all this kind of stuff, there was no benefit. But the, the group that had the higher amount of hydrogen gas, and it was a neutral pH, um, or closer to neutral. You know, I have to look at that study again. Let's see, we, I think it's actually slightly alkaline because of the way we made it. But, but anyway, um, it, 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 was, it was the uh, hydrogen gas, and it exerted a very prominent effect on the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So when we do that, the, the dosing conversion, because mice drink a lot of water. In fact, they drink, um, uh, you know, it's the human equivalence for, you know, we, we'd be drinking, you know, 10, 12 liters a day of water if we were, if we were mice. And so all the, all the water that mice are drinking is hydrogen water. And so if, if you know, so, so with us, if we're only drinking, say, you know, half a liter or a liter of hydrogen water, well, then we're getting, you know, 10 times a lower total dose of hydrogen. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Sure. So with, with this uh, clinical study that we, that we published um, in, for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and we, and we used um, 
some, some uh, nuclear magnetic resonance imaging technology to look at the fat deposits in the liver and things, we, we used the uh, hydrogen producing tablets at high concentrations like and nine, found- nine or, nine or 10 milligrams? Yeah, exactly, yeah. The, yeah, the same ones. And we, we found very, it was a very short study, only 12, yeah, I think we had 12, 12 uh, subjects. Um, but it was very, very obvious that hydrogen was having an effect even at, um, with, with, the, with these subjects. So again, suggesting this higher concentration of hydrogen. And now um, I'm just, uh, there's another uh, article that should be published uh, shortly, um, so, but, but I'll mention briefly on metabolic syndrome. Most studies have used a rather low dose of hydrogen. Okay, so uh, one a milligram of hydrogen per liter uh, drinking, say a liter of water. And then in this case, we, we decided to increase the dosage at the very, the very, very high levels, you know, using the hydrogen producing tablets. And we used, we had uh, 60 subjects and we went for uh, 24 weeks, so six months long study. And it, 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 it appears that uh, we had some very prominent effects and even more effective compared to the previous studies uh, leading to this trend that at least in some cases, a higher dose or higher concentration of hydrogen uh, is more effective than than the lower dose lower concentrations and that and that should make sense when we consider the very favorable effects we see in animal studies well one of the issues is the animals are getting a 10 times more hydrogen total because they're drinking so much more water than, than we are okay so thank you for sharing that <clears throat> helping us understand that the quantity does make a difference if it's done uh, strategically in pulsed and cycled so uh, it's very clear that a higher dose seems to work better, but the, the real second essential and important question is, what is the dosing? What is the cycling? Is it once a day? Is it twice a day? Is it once every other day? I mean, how long of a rest do you need before you take the next dose to still get optimal benefits? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. We, we, we need to figure that out um, because the fact is, like I said, the hydrogen is going to be gone in the body within an hour, okay? Yeah. yeah. So it is possible. Let's possible. What it, what you could drink hydrogen water, let's say, well, every hour. And by doing that, you would spike and it would go back down, spike and go back down. And maybe that would be more effective or maybe that would be less effective than drinking it just you know, once or twice. You only get the spike you know, once or twice a day. Um, we, we, we really need more research on, research on that. But I will say, let, let, let's do some other comparisons, right? So let's say you're going to take a total of uh, uh, 10 milligrams of hydrogen, okay? Now, you can... Hefty dose, hefty dose. Yeah. Actually, let, let's say, yeah, let's say um, um, six milligrams of hydrogen because I want to use a different analogy. Six milligrams of hydrogen, and you're going to take all six milligrams evenly in a 24-hour period, right? So that means you're essentially sipping on hydrogen milligram an hour. Exactly. Yes, that's what, exactly that's what you're doing, right? So you're, si you're sipping on hydrogen um, throughout the day. Now, if you do that, you may not get as good of benefits because you're, 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 not getting a, you're not getting a high enough dose of hydrogen in the body in order to reach the cellular concentrations required in order to induce those, those benefits and those changes in this, at the cellular level that, that we require, that we need. And um, now, if in contrast, if you were to just take all that dose, the full six milligrams all at once, that is probably going to be more effective taking it all at once than taking it throughout the entire day. And so I would say if you are going to get hydrogen and try to get the benefits, then you would want to um, 
get a high enough, get, get, a, get as high of a dose as you can all at once. And then you could probably do that multiple times a day, I, I imagine. So if you're, like I said, I don't know if it's better to take it just once a day. Let's say to take six or 10 milligrams of hydrogen once a day. Is, is that better than taking six or 10 milligrams, um, you know, six times a day? Maybe, maybe the six or 10 times a day is going to be more effective or just as effective because you're still getting at a high enough level. You're still getting spikes. You're, you're still getting all those different things. Um, but, but then again, maybe not. And well, so someone's, got, someone's got to do the darn studies. But, but in the interim, until then, it would seem that customizing the dose to your personal circumstances might be more appropriate. So that if you're in a normal, non-stressful circumstance at home, not really doing anything very stressful, not exercising much at all, then maybe once a day is sufficient. But if you're, you're a, a madman like you are with your exercise, then you're gonna to wanna to take it to help reduce the oxidative stress from your intense exercise. Or if you're traveling and exposing yourself to free radical stress from, gamma, from ionizing radiation at 35,000 feet, then it might be more appropriate to take it every two hours while you're flying. What do you think about those, that strategy? I, I like the strategy of, of the fact that, you know, tr try it out. I mean, there are, uh, you know, the, because, because hydrogen gas alone is really quite safe, then you're free to, to really take quite a bit of it um, at different times to see, you know, the, the, the effects from that. I mean, um, yeah, you, you might try multiple times a day for a little bit and then, and then maybe just try it once a day. Um, for a while, like maybe, you know, just taking one, I guess when we're talking about the tablets, because there's, there's other, you know, hydrogen waters out there, you just have to mm -hmm. make sure you're getting the right dose. But um, at least with like the, the tablets, you know that just by taking one tablet, you're getting at least as much hydrogen gas as used in the majority of clinical studies. So that's just, so now that's like the, the daily maintenance. And then if you're going to fly, like you said, or you're going to push up really hard to exercise, or maybe you're battling with some sort of condition, maybe, I suppose, yeah, you could, because hygiene is safe, you could, you know, bump it up a little bit more. Yeah, the other it. benefit, too, with oxidative stress I neglected to mention is that the mechanism the these tablets are able to produce hydrogen is that they actually use a very pure grade of metallic magnesium. And the magnesium dissociates into magnesium ions. It's not. It's not a compound. Uh, it's, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's not bound to anything. So, it's absorbed very readily, and it's not in significant quantities. It's like eighty milligrams of elemental ionic magnesium, which is uh, basically twenty percent of the RDA. Uh, so that's a very significant dose. And if you're taking four or five of them, I mean, you're going to get a massive dose with a virtually no risk of loose stools because it's an ion and you're not going to cause an osmotic diarrhea. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is one of the nice benefits. Most yeah. of our deficient in magnesium anyways, and taking yeah, it. Yeah. So it's, it's a huge benefit and you're not getting that benefit if you're getting it from the water uh generators which are usually typically they're about a milli i mean you can't really go higher than the normal solubility of molecular hydrogen in water which is 1.6 milligrams per liter right well there it depends there are some there are some that can get uh fair, relatively high concentrations it's just they're hit and miss and you know then you have you issue with the electrodes remember when that water comes in contact with the electrodes you know, I mean, hopefully the electrodes are very good, you know, platinum coated, which is very inert, you're not going to have a problem. But, but there, I was in China um, a few months ago, one of the symposiums, and, and some people did an analysis showing that on some of these units, they had electrode, uh, various electrodegradation causing heavy metals to be leached into the water, 
you know, uh, your cat, cadmium, your lead, um, your arsenic, um, you know, different things that can be toxic. And so you just, you just have to be cautious about all these types of things. Yeah. So that's not an issue with the tablets. It's the simplest, the easiest, and it seems like the no brainer solution. So, uh, yeah, that, that's a good way to do that. So, uh, tablets are what I personally prefer. And as I said, it's my favorite, it's my favorite, absolute favorite supplementation for all the reasons you just described. So I think we've done a good summary and what I'd like to do now is transition. Maybe, maybe you've shared most of this as you want to, but I know you're engaged in a lot of cutting edge research. A part of the intention of this conversation was to get us up to date on the newest and most exciting developments in the molecular hydrogen uh, uh, field. So perhaps you can enlighten us. Yeah, yeah, there are some really exciting things that are, that are going on. Um, unfortunately, some of them are not, uh, we, we haven't you know, published some of the results yet. And so some things are still, um, we have to just be cautious on, on things that we talk about. But I did mention uh, um, the fact that uh, Harvard University has moving forward with doing some, getting ready to do some clinical tr uh, trials. And that'll be really exciting. We have, there's some other universities um, here in the U.S. that are, um, doing some really neat studies as well. Actually, I think some of them are actually using the the hydrogen producing tablets as well. Um, so are, are the Harvard trials on the ischemia reperfusion? Yeah, using extra corporeal for extra corporeal blood circulation. Oh, uh, perfect. Yeah, for, for heart so bypass surgery. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah, or or other other you know types of conditions. So that'll so that's that's really important to you know understand hydrogen gas. Now we I, I'm I'm excited. We did a study. Um, with showing the effects of well, we've done these studies before with the radiation protection on in in rats, where we in, um, irradiate the medial sternal area of the rat myocardium, um, which often can kill kill the rats, uh, sadly, but uh, cause a lot of necrosis and damage and, and and different things. And drinking hydrogen water is able to suppress that damage uh, significantly, decreasing, you know, marks of oxidative stress like MDA, inflammation, tumor necrosis factor, alpha, um, a lot of different things. But this time what we did is we did a, a protein um, microarray analysis, which is really going to be very fascinating. We're analyzing the results right now. So typically when you, there's a lot of uh, RNA analysis you can do. Um, you administer the, the hydrogen or different things, and then you can look to see what types of uh, mRNA changes were made. Now, the problem, and I mentioned this earlier, is just because you see changes in the mRNA levels does not necessarily mean you're going to actually have changes in the protein levels. And typically, it's very difficult to measure. And, the and for those who aren't followers, the protein levels are the actual endogenous antioxidants that your body's producing. Yeah, see, yeah, exactly. Those, those are the actual proteins, the actual molecules that, that we need to to change signal transduction to do things the, the mrna uh, although there's actually mrna has a lot of benefits too microRNA, for example can regulate post translation and things of, of of other things but um when you measure protein levels we typically use say like a, a, the West, a western blot analysis which can be quite time intensive very difficult maybe you can only do a few proteins at a time it's just it's a lot of it's, it's very difficult well we did a protein um, microarray analysis and we after hydrogen administration and i mean when you look at the data that it, it's just overwhelming you know we looked at over there's there's hundreds and hundreds of proteins that were influenced and changed by hydrogen administration you know not, mm. not a whole not a whole lot maybe but but they were changed and and you can see the difference and in fact um one, one of the uh the, 
the main people who who does this um and experts in this in this field he was like i i i don't know if i've ever seen something as dramatic as all of these changes um that that are that are made so we're very excited to analyze and understand i mean it's they, they use antibodies and they have you know, to look exactly at, uh, you know, phosphorylated levels of proteins, because that's the thing. It's not just whether a protein was changed. It's about the phosphorylation of the protein, because the phosphorylation of a protein is what's going to uh, have it be active or not active. And it depends, of course, on what, which amino acid a residue is phosphorylated at. And that's going to dictate whether or not, you know, whether it's activating, inhibitory, or neutral. And so we're analyzing that data right now. And that's going to really help us understand the molecular mechanisms. Because the, the two main things that we really need um, to understand is, uh, number one, of course, the actual clinical benefits of hydrogen. Like we're seeing not a lot of great preclinical and clinical studies that was very promising, a lot of anecdotal reports. But we still haven't, you know, proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you will, that um, hydrogen gas it is truly this this wonder miracle you know that that uh it, it appears from say the animal studies you know or, or people report we we, we don't know that takes that takes years and years and lots and lots of research um we do know it's safe and that's why it's exciting to just keep on studying and studying and to see if it really is you know reaches that criteria of being a mainstream medicine right um but then besides the clinical uh, effects of hydrogen is really to understand the molecular mechanisms of primary targets of hydrogen gas. And so this, this work that I'm, I'm involved in right now, it's just, it's overwhelming amount of data to try to understand. And uh, this, this could really help us get an understanding of how hydrogen gas is working, because although there are hundreds of molecules and proteins that are being changed, many of those are just passenger molecules that were changed by upstream um, mo molecules and drivers. And so we have to look earlier and earlier on in order to see what was the first molecule that was changed in order to induce this this cascade of, of other events and and changes in the in protein phosphorylations and altering signal transduction so is this yet to be published study is going to be the one that reveals the mechanism of actually how hydrogen gas works um it or at least suggest the mechanism yeah it, it I, we're, we're getting we're i think we're getting we're getting closer Th this specific study is not the one that i had talked to you earlier about where um where, where we where we think we we can see where hydrogen gas can act very very early on and and interacting with um a part of the cell and and, and i'm being vague on, on purpose yeah but, right um but, but you have to be because you can't disclose it because it's not published yet yeah, exactly, and, and and frankly, we're just we're not we're not positive. We we need we we need to just do more more uh, research on this. Um, but 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 it does make sense. Uh, we if we if if we're if we're right, then then we can see this could happen, and this can cause this cascade of events. This this it goes right along with our hypothesis on the hormesis effect, and that can be responsible for inducing all these proteins, including the heat shock proteins. We know that that hydrogen. Uh, administration induces heat shock proteins and upregulates the mitochondrial unfolded protein response. All of this is about hormesis, and we can see some things very early on that hydrogen may be doing um, that could be responsible for these. And then we see all these downstream effects uh, of molecular hydrogen. Yeah, so one of the reasons why I'm so fond of you is not only are you brilliant, as anyone who's listened to this point can really identify this, but you're also really committed to athletic fitness. You're one of the most fit people I know, and really push push the boundaries of, of health. So, uh, in that process, and in, in seeking to optimize physical health, 
uh, frequently there's benefit to stacking modalities. So obviously molecular hydrogen is something you embrace and, and engage in. I'm wondering some of the other benefits. So, uh, so it would seem there would be a benefit for, for uh, sinking, not sinking, but applying these to, uh, approaches synergistically together. So I can think of several that I'd like you maybe to comment on. One would be, um, the sauna with the administration of heat shock proteins, which you alluded to, and uh, the uh, either the creation of ketones naturally through nutritional ketosis or exogenous ketones, and then um, what was the last one? Oh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> when it comes to the sauna, I think that's great. Um, I, so I don't do it together. I mean, would you like do the, would, from what you know, the mechanism at this point, would you do the, the hydrogen before the sauna or after? Yeah, I, I would, I would probably, um, I would probably, I, I probably would do this, the hydrogen before anything. That's like the, one of the first things I would, I, I would do. I say I would, because I don't always do it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but at least in theory. Yeah, at least, at least in theory. Again, it's talking about this 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 preconditioning um, hydrogen effect. Um, you know, if I can just back up and 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 talk about one study that you'll find very interesting, and I think helps set the sure. stage as well sure. um, about NAD NAD plus and NADH. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, those are you know you you've you've done books and all this stuff on this. Um, these are very important molecules, and the higher the ratio of the NAD, play, NAD plus to NADH, uh, the better. And that ratio, um, not only the ratio, but also the concentration of the molecules themselves tends to decrease with, with aging. And uh, when this, in this one very inter interesting study, they used a toxin in a cell culture study and administered the toxin to cell cultures. And as would be expected, that ratio decreased of the NAD plus NADH ratio. And that ends up having all these, you know, pathological and dead problems and cell death. When you administered the hydrogen gas, it helped to maintain those levels up higher. Now, this is part of the interesting part of the study is they just did it in cell culture. So you can imagine in this little petri dish, you add hydrogen gas in there. Well, that hydrogen gas is only going to be in there for you know mm. 20 minutes or you know half an hour, 40 minutes. It depends on the concentration. You know, it's not going to be there for very long. Um, and, and they found that there was a, a therapeutic protective effect uh, against that toxin for about 24 hours. It wow. was able to maintain that effect, okay? So, so you, that's suggesting a once a day dosing may be a possibility. It's certainly or, not- Or at least a minimum that you should be doing, right? Take it, take it once, once, once a day. But see, see then there's other studies, it's like another uh, mesochymal stem cells, I, I, I believe, they after administering hydrogen for several maybe it was a week or, or or so long then there was still a protective effect for several days later <laughs> so, oh, and, and then if you want to really go into it there was the clinical study on rheumatoid arthritis where uh, they had it for four weeks uh, high dose hydrogen water and after four weeks there was still a protective effect of molecular hydrogen there were still decreases in the disease rating score and oxidative stress, even after four weeks. So you really had an effect on gene expression, um, epigenetics, signal modulation, something very mu much more is going on here than again, just a radical scavenging activity. So, um, you know, it, 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 it does appear to slowly but surely slowly improving, I don't know if improving is the right word, influencing that gene expression 
in a favorable way. So maybe improving is okay. Um, so uh, so taking this together, um, when we look at uh, other things such as the, uh, the the sauna, the sauna really is a quite a mild thing. I don't know of, I, I suppose there's probably some toxic effects from a sauna, especially if you're in there for too long, just to, as mm -hmm. a sure. issue sure. and thing. Um, but but I but I, I still like the idea of taking the hydrogen before and then when you're talking about your uh, uh, hyperbaric oxygen, um, then then I say I think there's even more rationale of taking the molecular hydrogen before as as kind of a pre-treatment um, preconditioning. And before would be at least thirty minutes, maybe an hour, somewhere in that time frame. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that would be that would be ideal. Okay. Um, and that way, because oxygen, hyperic oxygen, you, you do get a lot of those benefits, but you do increase oxidative stress. You have different things going on. And of course, a lot of that is what mediates some of the upregulation of DNA repair enzymes and NRF2 we talked about and other things going on. But hydrogen can help to uh, mitigate some of the... Uh, so the, the sauna and the hyperbaric are, are also hormetic stressors, like, like we believe the molecular hydrogen is, but, but ketosis doesn't appear to be hormetic stressor. It's, a, it's, a, it's another, it's an alternative pathway, it's an alternative nutrient actually, it may be source of calories that uh, these water-soluble fatty acids that go in there and have enormous benefits. There are HDAC inhibitors, histone deacetylase inhibitors, they activate not only NRF2, but FOXO3, and they increase NADPH, which is another magnificent way to radically reduce oxidative stressors. So do you, have you looked at any uh, studies using them synergistically? It would seem to be benefit, but I, I'm just not aware of any that have evaluated that. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know either. That's probably something that should be, should be looked at, and we can look at some of the pathways that hydrogen gas also is able to activate or mm -hmm. optimize. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, I suppose sometimes when it talks about hormesis, is it's, some of it is semantics, um, mm -hmm. and in fact, some would some would some would uh, even argue that hormesis, that that ketones and and fasting and all this stuff is also a form of hormesis. Um, it, it's it's not as clear the definition of of how we we uh, you know as maybe we would like, um, but some of these pathways that are activated. Is this some of the benefits? So, for example, with the mitochondria, well, uh, the, those, those ketones, whether they're endogenous or exogenous, are very beneficial for the mitochondria as long as the mitochondria are are ready for them. Their mm -hmm. um, ketones also can increase uh, free radicals, at least initially, depending on the right places. But this is also what's very good because, in the long run, they can decrease oxidative distress. You have a better handling efficiency of of the metabolism of the ketones. Part of this is why you can upregulate the NRF2 pathway. Well, hydrogen gas being able to both uh, suppress excessive oxidative damage as well as improve and activate the function of the mitochondria, you know, improving the mitochondrial membrane, arrest membrane potential, um, you know, have influence in the mitochondrial transition pores so you don't have pathological problems. That's more of an ischemia uh, reperfusion issue. Um, increasing mitochondria biogenesis itself by increasing PGC1 alpha. So there's, there are some similar areas where, where ketones seem to work as, as does hydrogen gas. And, and, and then maybe like in some of the, the data I'm going through right now, we're seeing some phosphorylated levels um, of, of various proteins that are, that where ketones also influence, including like AMPK uh, pathway, mm -hmm. Um, and, and a lot of different areas that, you know, we, we can see clearly there are some similar proteins being influenced, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's so going it's a, to... So it's increasing AMPK levels? 
That's, that would it, suggest it would be beneficial in autophagy too. Yeah, and in fact, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, we should, that, and that's what I'm saying is, just because we see an increase in some of these different proteins doesn't necessarily mean that's, that's the pathway that's going to occur. So like autophagy, uh, absolutely, yes, hydrogen does, and it, well, it does, it can um, induce and actually uh, enhance autophagy. autophagy wow, I did not know that. that make, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so we, 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 have, we, we can see increases like Vesselin-1 uh, levels and in um, MC2-3, uh, the MCC21 ratio, the microtubule, which is a, a topogy co complex, um, decreased phosphorylations of like a STAT3, stat um, um, the mTOR C1, uh, you know, all these areas so you can have increased autophagy. And, and by so doing, you're going to get therapeutic protective effects um, from, from the hydrogen gas. However, there are other studies showing that hydrogen gas inhibits excessive <laughs> autophagy. <laughs> And excessive, excessive autophagy. Yes, exactly. Like, like anything in life, excess, excessive can be bad. So it, you, because there's no question you can do, you can have too much autophagy. It, yes, exactly. So that, that's how cells die, right? You have necrosis, you have apoptosis, and you have autophagic cell death. And when you when when you have too much going on, and and a lot of uh, drugs or interventions, things can can potentially cause an excessive amount of autophagy. Then that's that's bad. Well, hydrogen gas. Um, so, so for example, what was the compound? There, there was a drug that was used in the study. D, I forget. But but they but it, it induces autophagy uh, too much, and it causes a lot of yeah, yeah, problems. Dinitro something. No. Anyway, I forgot. Yeah, it's not. Well, it's not okay. dinitrophenol, but it starts okay. with. But 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 anyway, but but they was able to uh, prevent the excessive amount of autophagy be, being produced, and and there's even and even going through like you know talk about uh, uh, mammalian what's it mammalian target of rapamycin um, mTOR <laughs> oh yeah yeah simple um, mTOR yeah <laughs> but, but but with the so sometimes yeah even with this one maybe hydrogen gas in some cases activates mTOR which is like that's bad but it's also really good because you know if you want to get you know recover and get stronger and all this stuff you want to have mTOR activation well hydrogen gas it, it appears in certain cases it could do that in other cases you're having lower mTOR same thing with IGF-1 so in, in one our one as a human study IGF-1 was decreased by hydrogen but in another, there was some increases in IGF-1. And, well, and it, it depends on where this IGF-1 is. Is it in the muscle or is it in, in the plasma? You know, yeah. it has different consequences. So. That, yeah, that's exactly right. And then you, because then you have to talk about, okay, what about the receptor, um, you know, uh, the, the receptor uh, re re sensitivity, right, mm -hmm. uh, to, to different things. So there, there is so many things to consider. Just because, again, the, a molecule or a hormone or a protein is increased doesn't necessarily mean it's going to have this direct effect we have to look complex. at the actual outcomes that is great i did not realize it influenced autophagies because it makes perfect sense because you know i'm a big fan of uh time-restricted eating in which case and that's where i do my exercise uh at the tail end of time-restricted eating so i haven't been eating for 18 20 hours then do the sauna and then i'll eat a big meal but it sounds like an hour before to do that that whole sequence doing the doing the hydrogen would not only improve autophagy, but then on the tail end of that, activate mTOR for protein, uh, rebuilding mu muscle protein synthesis. Yeah, it, 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 it may. I mean, the jury, the jury is out. We need to have a, tons of more studies, but, but that's, 
that's kind of the nice thing when you think about um, maybe people who are doing these long fasting and they're getting a lot of autophagy. Well, maybe their, their autophagy stuff is going really good in their brain, but they're getting too much autophagy in their kidney. And this yeah, is yeah. really, it's not that simple. But, but the idea then is, okay, so if you take hydrogen, then you can continue to enhance this autophagy going on in, in different areas of the body, but attenuate some of the excessive autophagy going on in other places. Yeah. And that's going to make Boy, your that's long-term expensive. fast safer. Great strategy. I'm going to start recommending that for people who are doing fasting, longer and longer fast. It's crazy not to do it. I mean, the cost is so low and the benefits are so high and there's virtually no harm. Yeah. Well, and think about it too. When, when you take a hydrogen, um, you're, you can increase gastric ghrelin secretion and ghrelin is the hunger hormone. So when the, one of the first things you do when you, when you fast, you increase ghrelin and then ghrelin is extremely neuroprotective and anti-inflammatory and a whole bunch of benefits. Well, hydrogen also increases ghrelin. So in a lot of ways, hydrogen mimics a fasting, you know, it, from autophagy to ghrelin to you know, a lot of other pathways that are, that are activated. But um, it depends on the condition. Yeah, yes, indeed. Wow, this is, this is fascinating. You, you, so, know, you know, you might consider with some of your uh, uh, fasting and things to um, actually eat, um, because eat and then do the workout. Because if, you, if you're always doing it at the tail end of your fasting, you can actually get more benefits by switching that up and actually have your food. And then uh, half an hour after that, do your heart exercise. And by making- wait, wait, So what, what's the rationale for that? Help me understand. Because, because when you're exercising uh, uh, hard like that, you have, um, you, 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 so, so some of the studies, for example, how we're done with uh, taking your, your essential amino acids or your protein or different things before your workout, and the utilization of the amino acids and the proteins and everything increased significantly higher by taking it before than by taking it after. And by having a plus, by having higher substrates, so for example, uh, some other studies, when you're exercising, you have low, you have low glycogen levels because you've been mm -hmm. fasting. You have uh, your central nervous system. A lot of things are just kind of toned down a little bit. Of course, you're more adapted, so it's not gonna be as much, but there's still things that are going on to, to uh, decrease the total efficiency that you could possibly do. And so by having substrate energy and fuel and all this stuff in your body before you exercise, allows you to have a potentially harder, stronger, and better workout and utilize the nutrients even more. Now, that's only, only gonna work if you're doing this intermittent thing. So- I was gonna say, yeah, that's the other component, once or twice a week, maybe. Yeah, or, or or maybe you know some weeks on, some weeks off. I mean, I don't know what that yeah. that that option that that That's best interesting, thing is. It's interesting. I'm going to try that because I yeah. do hard workouts at, at the with my personal trainer twice a week. So that's a perfect opportunity to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. It's great. Woo! Wasn't expecting that benefit. If you provided a lot, some compelling uh, evidence and at least stories that you strongly support using this, it would seem from my perspective, that it's almost medically negligent not to have molecular hydrogen in your cabinet, the tablets, just in case, you know, someone you know or love, maybe even yourself has a stroke or a heart attack. This should be one of the very first things that you're doing. And let's go over some of the fine details of the dosing because you, I mean, the, the normal dose is one tablet and that at this high dose, if you put it in 500 mLs, a half a liter, which is about, uh, what is that? 12 ounces, 16 ounces, 16 ounces, I think. Ounces. Yeah, 16 ounces. Um, you're going to get 
about nine to 10 milligrams per liter. So that would be four to five milligrams that she'll be getting. So, but you can use more than one tablet. And uh, I mean, I, I take four or five, six tablets sometimes. I don't know what you're, you probably have taken 10 or 20 tablets at once. So wh wh why don't you walk us through that and how you would put the tablets in the water, how you'd look. You, I find that it's important to actually set a timer because you can't just put the tablet in the water and drink it. It's not going to work. You have to let it dissolve. And the, 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 the rate at which it dissolves can vary from anywhere from one to, to two or three minutes, depending on how cold the temperature is of the, the temperature of the water. If you put it in ice water, it's going to take a long time. <laughs> but uh, so why don't you walk us through that and how many, what do you think the tablet range should be? So, so yeah, I've, I've, I've talked to, uh, you know, the, the man, the manufacturer. Yeah. Yeah. Alex on. Yeah. I've interviewed on, him before too. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's right. So, I mean, he'd probably be better to, to, to talk about some of this stuff than I would, but, but at least from what I've seen and also uh, <laughs> when we've done some studies with the gas chromatography um, to get the highest concentration, it, it would appear that you probably want to use just your normal uh, room temperature, you know, uh, water. Um, not cold water. Cold water, like you said, does take a long time. And then by the time it dissolves, most of the gas is already gone. Yeah, and not sparkling water either, which you educated me on. Because sometimes on, the, on a flight, I like to use sparkling water, but not a good idea yeah. that it has it already has CO2 dissolved. Yeah, because well, it's, it's, it's sparkling water can yeah, uh, bring the gas out faster. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, so yeah, so, so maybe room temperature water. And then, and then what... What we instructed some of the, the subjects to do, for example, is you, once you put the tablet in there, as soon as that tablet rises to the top of the water, that's when you start drinking it. Because by the time you finish drinking it, the tablet has fully dissolved. So at that time, the water is very cloudy and milky and everything. That's, that is the quasi-suspended hydrogen gas in there. And you don't want to wait until it's clear because if you wait, then all the gas is just escaping into the atmosphere. So, so you, don't, you, don't, you don't want that. Um, the benefit you're just losing it yeah exactly you're, you're losing uh, a very i think if we did the test i think we could, you can measure close to 10 milligrams per liter and then if you wait until the water was clear you're only down to like two milligrams per liter right um and that's so loss yeah that's a pretty big it's a pretty big loss so you're you're better off drinking the water prematurely and 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 then in swallowing the, the last you know fifth of the tablet type thing you know because it'll just obviously react from the stomach acids and you'll get all the benefits anyways, you're better off drinking a little bit prematurely than you are um, waiting too long. And any, any comments on the number of tablets or any concerns that are taking too many? Uh, just, just because it is magnesium, right? So, so to, you know, obviously the, the DRI is what, four or 500 milligrams or so. Um, most yeah. of your supplements are like, you know, what, 200, 300 milligrams of magnesium just for a supplement. And a lot of people, I think even you often will, will recommend maybe a thousand or two thousand milligrams of magnesium, yeah. especially if you're trying to mitigate against uh, oxidative stress from uh, EMF exposures, uh, because may, there, there's some strong suggestion, no definitive studies that I've seen published, but strong suggestions that magnesium will serve as a calcium channel blocker, blocker which uh, there's some, some some compelling research that suggests that's part of the process that EMFs uh, mitigate or me mediate their damage cellularly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I guess, you know, if there's 80 milligrams, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe don't take 10 every day. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So yeah, maybe four or five, but you know, I, I think uh, if, if you have a big exposure 
uh, for whatever reason, like if you're flying at a high altitude or if you've gotten a heart attack or a stroke, I think cautions to the wind and maybe even those are the times where you maybe want to go to 10 and take a really high dose. So, uh, but otherwise just a few tablets would be, would be. Uh, yeah. And, and, and I, and I agree with you. I, I do think that, you know, it's, 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 you know, prevention is better than cure or, or sorry, better than, well, yeah. yeah, better than cure. Yeah. Um, no, but, yeah. But the, you know, I, I don't want to give any, you know, false hope or I'm, I'm excited about the hygiene and everything, but, but, you know, honestly, we don't, we don't really know that if you take the tablet and then you or, or hydrogen, and then you have the, a stroke or something that you're going to be, you know, way better off and all this stuff, you know, we, we don't, I don't know that we don't have the research for that yet. Right. And maybe it'll come, maybe, maybe we'll actually just, maybe we'll discover, you know, five years from now that actually the, the, the biological effects are minimal, but, but because hydrogen gas is, is safe, um, then you need to make as, as a consumer, right. The, the choice, okay, I have a possibility of, um, and not benefiting me and getting some good magnesium in the case of the tablet or, or, or be the possibility of actually getting good benefits. I, I guess I'm just, I just want to say that I am very excited about it. The research is promising all this stuff. Yes, but we, we don't have the, we don't have definitive clinical proofs, proven studies at this point, just suggest strong suggestions, especially, uh, in, in animal studies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it looks, it's, it's, it's exciting, you know, it's, it's yeah, and Harvard's doing the Harvard is doing the clinical trials now. So we'll know. So, that's good. So any other studies or that you've encountered or wanted to share or, or have we covered most of them? Yeah, I think we've covered most of them. There'll, there'll be, uh, I think by the time we do our, maybe a, a, a next podcast or something, we'll, we'll have some more okay. data that we can, we can share. And there's, there's always so much to talk about hydrogen and just yeah. because it really does cover so many different metabolic pathways, assimilating, and maybe, maybe one of those times we can talk about um, a specific area or something like this, um, where, where hydrogen could come involved or, or something. There's, there's a lot right. we can talk about. Well, this has been great. I want to thank you so much, uh, for everything you're doing and you will do. And, uh, maybe next time we talk, you're going to get your PhD pretty soon. Do you, do you anticipate to have it this year? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, you know, I don't know with this, it's a lot of work, um, that we're, we're involved with some publications and, and some research and things. So, you know, it just, well, one step at a time, I mean, nothing, Nothing, no, nothing's going to change. I, I always hope that, you know, at, at the end, you're going to somehow learn something because you have a title or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice to give you a little validation. We, we, you know, we knew you were the expert and really had the, the scientific mind. And I, I so greatly appreciate your support when, you know, I'm writing my, my new strategy now is not to write books as I've shared previously and write, write scientific reviews. And, you're, you're like the, the main primary reviewer I sent to first to, 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 for critical analysis because you never hesitate to <laughs> tell me when I'm wrong or I've got this thing mixed up. So I, I really greatly appreciate that about you. Well, I, I, I appreciate that I, I, I'm given the opportunity and I really appreciate when I do, you know, is to give you maybe some criticism or something that uh, you're always just so grateful for. Like, oh man, I'm so, so glad you told me this. You know, that's, that, that's, that's really good. I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, it's a good collaboration. So really appreciate everything you're doing and we'll definitely have you on again, maybe by the time you get your PhD. And in the meantime, uh, I, I would encourage those of you who are listening, if there's been a lot of information shared here and it would be the rare individual who's not going to benefit from listening to this a second time. I'm going to listen to this a second time. So uh, really, I've gotten some really great 
uh, insights on how to modify my current protocol. So I thank you so much, Tyler, and really appreciate it again. Yeah, thank you. And you're welcome to look at my website, Molecular Hydrogen Institute. You're welcome to, you know, add me on social media, you know. Um, yeah, what's your social media handle? Um, so Facebook, just Tyler LeBaron. And my I just got an Instagram account recently. Um, I post some stuff, you know, when I'm out doing research, sometimes I'll post some new articles, but it's a Tyler W. LeBaron. Um, you just look me up and, you know, I, I'm ho yeah. hopefully I can help spread the word. Yeah, well, that's what we're trying to do. And you too. So, all right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it.